0: When we're studying first, John, as you look at this study, uh, one of the things that you'll know about John is that he wrote or should know that he wrote uh, the gospel of John first, second and third John and revelation. And so if you're kind of wanting to get that in your mind, you can kind of do that. If you have ever studied first, John, you'll know that there's uh, many of those themes uh, connect us to the gospel of John. And so I uh, just want to kind of get that in your mind. Now, the other thing is just to give you a little background, if you're maybe new to the Bible or new to maybe this kind of study specifically on like first John, uh, one of the things you don't you you see in a lot of books when you start them, you'll see an author and recipients. And you'll know kind of who they're writing to and who's writing. Uh, John's one of those where it's not that's not there. And so it's kind of something that hinders us maybe in some way limits our understanding at some level. But what you'll do is if you study this book, you'll see as you work through it that um, John is going to be addressing some issues and really combating some false teaching. And we'll see that as we read through it. So by way of overview, I'll give you a little background. Uh, most people would say in the early part of the first century and moving forward that there were the, there was this heresy called the Gnostic heresy. And really, um, just to understand that the Gnostics had kind of a dualistic worldview. They saw heaven and earth as kind of separate Spheres and the way that they came to understand like the heavenly realm was some special knowledge that they would get. And so those people kind of saw like there's this big contrast between the supreme God and then the material world. And the supreme God was where holiness was and the material world was filled with sin. And so they would see this kind of break. A true Gnostic believed that he really possessed this divine spark. And so this spark came and it gave him insight and understanding into spiritual things and to his spiritual home. And some level he could kind of get there into this spiritual kind of home, uh, even though he was still imprisoned in the body. And so there was a real strong distinction between, again, like his idea of this heavenly realm that he got through this divine spark that just kind of came on him and the earthly realm realm so made aware of this newfound knowledge and its plight like the struggle of living in this world imprisoned in this world he would sometimes uh, be able to, to again to gain kind of spiritual insight through these uh under this this new understanding now you say jared i don't really care about that it's kind of like too much information for me. i don't you know what you need to understand about that, that that is really valuable is this um that means like they could be right in this heavenly realm and in bad shape in the earthly it meant like uh, for instance like you could say oh i love god in the heavenly realm i just hate people i'm the meanest ugliest person on the planet i don't like people i'm ugly to people And so I could do that because that's in the earthly realm, and the in the physical realm. And I'm up here in the metaphysical realm and the spiritual realm. And I'm all good. Me and God are good up here. Just down below is like eh, it doesn't matter. So what happens is, as you look at first John and you start studying it, you start thinking of light and darkness. But again, they would see that in the heavenly sphere. But John says, no, it comes down to the ground. It's it's in all of life. It's and so what would happen even with them even further was Jesus becomes purely spiritual, never became an actual man Uh, uh, again, like sin was redefined because in the heavenly realm, maybe I don't sin down here. I do. I mean, there's just a real divide in that realm. And so that's just important to know Uh, the Gnostics idea of salvation is not really the focus is not on God, but ultimately upon the individual's self-understanding and the resulting freedom it provides. So again, like it's contrary to scripture. You can see some of that in our world today. Some of that kind of thought, this higher place that me as an individual gets to go and maybe disconnected from the earthly realm. So all that's kind of going on. You'll see it as you move forward. Now, couple of things to know three teachings if you're making notes you say three teachings that john will combat first is doctrinally these false teachers have compromised the person and work of jesus they said that jesus was a spiritual being not an earthly being and so jesus wasn't actually a man that was material that was in this world so he, he was not a man that was one thing that they did so doctrinally there was a problem now i want you to stop and think very practically in this world There are a lot of people that claim to believe in God. There are a lot of people that claim to believe in God. But not the God of Scripture. Do you understand that? It is okay in the public arena at every level to pray to a God. Not a defined God. So, I mean, you even may struggle with that this morning. You say, I believe in God. But who is he? Who is this God? If you're in a a person, you say, hey, I believe in God. I believe in God. I believe define him. You have to define him. Unless he is undefinable. In the Gnostic thing. You couldn't define God. He was not able to be defined with words. You just had to have this spiritual experience. But here's the problem. In the Bible. When you're looking at scripture. God has spoken. God has spoken and revealed to us. Who he is. I'm not searching for him. For the spiritual experience. Separated from revelation. But he is speaking to me. So he defines he is for me. That is essential for our understanding. Now, here's kind of how you need to think about this. You could say to people, I believe in God. But when I say I believe that Jesus Christ is the eternal son of God who came to earth becoming a man and died on the cross so that we could be forgiven of our sins and reconciled to God, then you're going to separate yourself from others. Christianity is distinct. It is distinct in that we have a Savior who came down and died on the cross for our sins. It's not that we access God in any other way, but through a crucified Savior who died in our place. It's very important that we rehearse that. Because in our world, as we hear people talk, there's a lot of God talk. We're saying, but... I'm saying, hold on, just define him. Is he the Trinitarian God of the Bible? Man, that, that is a very important thing for us. And so these false teachers have come in and they said they've had this spiritual experience and they're talking all this stuff and it's very entertaining and the people are going, what? Are we, we have it right? And John's going to come in and speak to that going to speak to it about a physical savior who lived and died. Very important. We do that now. So that's one is the theological. The second thing is the moral kind of issues. Morally, the false teachers minimize the seriousness of sin. First John 1 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we do lie and do not practice the truth. First John 1 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, here's the thing. There is this is going on. Do you understand that in the Christian world right now, there is a redefinition of sin? You say, what is sin? Sin is when I feel bad. The problem is, is if the culture is saying, well, sin is this sin is that dependent 1950s. That was sin. 2014, this is sin. When we're doing that, we're redefining it. And when the culture begins to redefine it, then listen, the, the average hearer, the person out their their conscience informed by the world informed by the world begins to say this is not sin this is sin this is not sin this used to be a sin it's not a sin anymore that is a problem do you understand that is a problem it means that it's changing sin is changing all the time righteousness is changing all the time depending on what culture you're in the, the again god has revealed to us through his word what sin is and we define it. We need to hear that. Third, socially, they failed because their spiritual pride. Speaking of the false teachers, their spiritual pride resulted in a lack of brotherly love. Whoever says First John two nine that he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Do you hear that? They the false teachers left. They left the church. They walked away from the church and they walked away from the church. And in doing that, they were they were failing to love the church. You could say all day, oh, I love my brother. But if you're not embracing him and dwelling with him and living with him, you are not embracing a a gospel centered focus of love. So we just see that it's very important. Spiritual pride. A lot. Listen, you find somebody and I've seen it a so many times in their spiritual arrogance and pride they cannot love they cannot because what happens is people don't fit their self conceived like idea maybe of what you know they've come up with and they are in their pride and arrogance they are not loving their but they can't they love themselves they love their opinions they love their thoughts and he's com- he is confronting them and he's confronting them socially on a social level. Now, so we say here's the occasion. Why is he writing? Just stop. Why is he writing? He is writing because theologically and we, we just kind of you, you, there's a theological error that's shown up. He's writing because morally and socially these false teachers have come in and upset people in the church. It's, it's very it's a pervasive issue in this this culture. It's a pervasive issue in our culture. We always have to know that Satan is about destroying the church through false teaching coming in. It always seems to, to almost implode within the church has problems when they reject the truth. So let's just kind of I want you to do this now. If you if you have your Bible open. Uh, this might be helpful for you. There are four times that John's going to write about why he is. Well, there's multiple. There's more times. I'm just going to kind of focus in on a couple of things here. But he's going to say, I am writing to you. So you could underline writing if you want to. First John 1 four. He's writing to promote joy in the child of God. You can see that that your joy, their joy may be made complete. 1 John 2 1. Just slip over there and underline writing. I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. So it's to prevent the child of God from committing sin. Third, I'm writing to you to protect the child of God from false teachers. You'll see that in 1 John 2 26. He's writing to address that. This is really cool because it's nice when John will say, This is why. I mean, you're not trying to figure all that out. You're saying, here it is, 1 John 2.26. You can underline it. You can go to 1 John 5.13. I write these things. What's he talking about? To provide assurance of salvation for the child of God. He says, I write these things to you. Now check this out who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. He is, he is writing to give them security for them to know. Can you believe that? To know that they have eternal life. First John 5, 13. Okay. now. If you've read John's gospel, a lot of times people, maybe if you're early, like came a Christian, maybe like in your early adulthood or something, somebody say, hey, get the gospel of John out and read that. You know, that's what people talk to you about. And so maybe you've read it more than you have first John. But one of the things you'll see is there's kind of two. Things about these uh, two books. And they go together in kind of a beautiful way. In this way. And I, I'll just give it to you. John 20, 30 and 31. Says that, that John was written. The gospel of John. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. The son of God. And believing you may have life in his name. First John 513 says. I'm writing to you who believe. John 20. For those 20, 30 and 31. For those. So the reading, so they would believe. First John five thirteen, so that those who do believe will be firmed up. So that's that's a good that's a good thing for us to know. He's writing to the believing community that they would have assurance of their salvation. Okay, now we're going to look at First John one one through four. It's kind of the intro of this book, and I'm and this is kind of going to be, of course, the heart of where we are today. And before we start it, I just want to say, like, you just got to think like and I, I think it's probably helpful to do it this way. Think about being in a courtroom. And you're um, sitting in there maybe as a juror and you're sitting there and, and you're watching things unfold and the prosecution comes up and they start laying out a case point by point They're laying out this case and you're going, man. There that guy sharp that's laying out that that woman like the way they they're laying out the case is so amazing and beautiful. And I just like I'm starting to kind of to like be drawn to that. It's it's an amazing case. It's winsome and all. It's maybe very articulate and colorful and maybe you naturally identify. So you're sitting there and you're hearing this unfold and kind of getting excited about what's taking place. Um, And then after all of the cases laid out, the defense stands up and say, I'm calling a witness. And we're calling an eyewitness. And the eyewitness comes and he's an older man and he sits down and he begins to speak. And when you hear him, you say. He's an eyewitness. He saw every bit of it. He's been a part of it. He knows exactly what took place. And you look over there at the prosecution and you start saying they built a straw man. They made it up. I think first John one, one through four is once something like that. The one who has seen and touched and handled is speaking. He didn't read it in a book. He actually was there. That's just like, yes, you know, he saw it. He, got, he knows about it. I mean, you're sitting there in the jury going like he like he's not condemned. That guy knows. He saw. I understand. So I think it's important that you get that. First John one, one through four, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and and was made manifest to us that which we have seen and heard. We proclaim also to you. So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the father. And with his son Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things. So that our joy may be complete. Now when you look at that. There's kind of a bunch of little relative clauses and phrases. It's kind of hard when you're trying to diagram this. Or think about how it fits together. Just know this verse 3. Is the central thrust. It's the main verb. We proclaim. That's what John said. He's proclaiming. As a witness, he is proclaiming. We proclaim it's 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 the it's the focus there. John, along with others, is proclaiming that he has seen Jesus Christ, the word of life. He is proclaiming the good news. And he is making it very clear that he was an eyewitness of that good news. He's doing so that so that. Um, We would have fellowship with the father and the son and experience the fullness of joy. Now, have you ever had doubts? I mean, honestly, if you're a Christian or been a Christian for a long time, there's it's very likely that you've had doubts, maybe doubts about your faith, maybe doubts about some aspect of the faith, maybe doubts about what Jesus has said that we're to do, how we're to live all those things. Every time, really, that you and I sin, it's doubting. Did you know that every time you're angry, every time you're bitter, every time that you're lusting, every time you can make a long list, it's a part of doubt. It's, it's a way of saying, I just don't believe that loving people is God's way. I don't I don't I don't really believe I don't believe sacrificially loving my wife or my children or working hard. I don't believe the scripture. I don't I'm not aligned with that. So I think it's important we say doubts are something that we struggle with. We struggle often with. Now, in this culture, you might say uh, things that we could think of and maybe every culture. I, I, I doubt my marriage. I doubt like our future. I doubt. Those children and, you know, I have these doubts about like staying faithful to that and running after the things that would give honor and glory to God. You might struggle with saying, man, I just kind of want to go live my life and look over there. It's so much more joyful over there and it's peaceful and it's easy. I'm just going to run after that. It's a doubt. And so it's, it's not believing the right things. We could have doubts about those responsibilities like that. We could have doubts about our church. We could have doubts about every aspect of life. And when you see somebody running from those things, it's because they doubt God's word that he's telling them this is what you have you're where you are. This is what it means to obey him. And we as Christians have to realize there's times where it, it, it feels like this is not the maximum joy. If I want maximum joy, it will not be to pursue the godly things that he's laid out for me. I think it's a danger that we all face. And so I just think it's important that you see that because there's these competing voices that say, believe this will be better. Believe that will be better. Believe, believe, believe. And they're calling you to and we as Christians need to understand that, be able to spot it. So let's go to verse one as we look at this and you'll see the first phrase that which was from the beginning. In this first little clause, it's like it's kind of speaks of the word of life in its essence the word of the li- of life is something. The word of life, I think, pictured here is deity. He is from the beginning. Now, John one one through three says this: In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Do you see that? He, that when he speaks of the word, he was with God. He is God. He made all things that, that, that the word there is speaking of and some people say, well, it's the gospel message. It's Jesus. I, I think I lean more towards saying this is just speaking of Jesus. That is speaking of Jesus, because and I tie it, of course, to John chapter one, where it says in the beginning was the word word was with God. The word became flesh in John one fourteen speaking of Jesus. And so we see here he was from the beginning. You keep moving forward. This is kind of these next little phrases or how it describes how we perceive the word of life, which we have heard and seen with our eyes and looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John is making it clear that he heard, saw and touched the word of life. John walked with Jesus. He talked with Jesus. He touched Jesus. All of that. He knew him as Jesus was a physical man. So this eternal word from the beginning Came, became flesh and dwelt among us a, a living person dwelt among us it, it was jesus was a, a one you, you could say this one man but inside of him he is both god and man and we see that i think laid out here he became flesh john one fourteen tells us He had seen him. He had touched him. He was an eyewitness. When he stands up there, this is his witness. I have seen Jesus. I have touched Jesus. I've been with Jesus. It's very powerful picture. Now, why would Jesus be called the word? Is that weird to you? I mean, sometimes you hear that and you're like, I remember the first time I read that. I was like, "Ah, I don't know what it was. it saying, you know, I get down to verse 14. I was like, okay, this is Jesus. But what is the word here? How do you see that now? One scholar said it this way, God's word in the Old Testament is his powerful self-expression in creation, revelation and redemption. Again, God's work, because what do you see in, in creation? God speaks. God said. He is expressing it's a powerful like self-expression that you're understanding God by seeing him speak the world into existence. You're understanding God as he speaks to people and they're grasping and understanding things about him. You understand God through redemption as he saves the people over and over. Now, he goes on to say, and the personification of that word makes it suitable for John to apply it. It as a title to God's ultimate self-disclosure, the person of his own son. So you say, how can I see? How can I see Jesus? How how can I see God? How can I understand God? The greatest way that we see that is when he reveals himself as Jesus becomes flesh and we see him walking among us. He is the he is the, the picture of what it means. Like what Jesus said is when you see me, you see god jesus is the ultimate self-disclosure of god verse two the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the father and was made manifest to us have you ever um you ever like watch one of those movies and they're kind of like there's this witness and they saw it but they were scared and they they were like saying This is what happened, but I'm not going to go do it and tell it in court because otherwise, like if I do, then trouble's going to come like. So they're hiding out and saying, like, I I can't I can't tell it. And then all of a sudden they get killed and it's all over and nobody gets to know, you know. But here, when you're looking at this, these people, they saw they were eyewitnesses and they proclaim They're, they're going to speak. And we proclaim to you the eternal life. These authors were and they were commissioned by Christ to do that. The apostles had both like they understood, they saw and they spoke of it. God used them to write these things down for us. They they had a, a historic faith. It's been passed down throughout the centuries. Now, notice what he says here about the eternal life, proclaiming the eternal life. Uh, we see here, and I think it's important you understand, Jesus is the eternal life. I mean, that, that's what He's saying. There's a level there where we're saying he is eternal life. We see him as the eternal life. There is no other life apart from him. He possesses eternal life, and all who are united to him by faith get to experience eternal life. It's very important. I think you see that. Friday morning, I was meeting uh, with my dad and a couple. Of, I mean, another guy, and we were sitting down. We were working through uh, some of this passage, and he was saying that eternal life is not just like it, like living forever. It's not just that. When we talk about that, it, it's 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 not just living forever. It is actually like when you think about it. It is, it's a quality of life that's spoken of because there are going to be people who will be eternally damned. They will eternally live separated from God. Eternal life is tied to Not only is it tied to the longevity and it's tied to like experiencing uh, this quality of life with God. It's also tied to relationship. We are in relationship with the eternal life and therefore we experience eternal life. And that is that is an eternal joy that we experience as we're in relationship with the father and the son. It's very important. To see that John 17 three says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So there's this relationship it's tied to and we get to experience the eternal life with him. It's very I think it's very powerful to see that. Now, where is this life found? This life is found in Jesus Christ, the eternal life. He was with the father, speaking of his eternal existence. He came down and became flesh and dwelt among us. We see his divinity and his humanity wrapped up here. Now, what is the purpose of John's witness? Why does he come here? Verse three. Notice what it says. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you two may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. So he's saying we're proclaiming this Jesus is the full revelation of God. We're getting to experience it and see it. This message is is presented, it's laid out before them, this message of Christ and it's coming. Now, what you're going to notice here, and I think it's just important, look at this text here. We we see him speaking of this fellowship. When you think of fellowship, like man, you could think of a lot of different stuff like um I don't when I was going growing up, fellowship meant like we were going to like uh, maybe eat food as a church family. And so everybody would come together. People would bring food and you might like get some good food that you would never had before or whatever. Uh, sometimes when, when we were talking about like fellowship, um, uh, we, we think of like a membership, maybe in a church. You say we're a part of this fellowship. And it just means like, hey, we're all kind of we all joined a church or whatever. Fellowship goes much deeper. There, there, there's something very powerful in this picture here of fellowship, because when you go back to like the Garden of Eden, which we've studied on multiple occasions, you go back, the people are in the garden. They're with God in relationship with God. They're experiencing life with him. And then after the after sin, they're cast out of the garden. They're separated from fellowship with God. They do not get to experience the fullness of that. They're cut off from the tree of life. They're cut off from fellowship with God. And so sin separated that, and we have to say, how is relationship or fellowship restored? I think that's important that we see that. Those who trust in Christ, rely upon Him, are united back together in fellowship with God and with the Son and with one another. It's a very beautiful picture for us to see. When we think of fellowship, listen to this, this is kind of helpful for me. Fellowship specifically is a Christian word and denotes that common participation in the grace of God, the salvation of Christ and the indwelling of the spirit, which is the birthright of all believers. It is the common birthright of all believers. It is our common possession of God, the Father, Son and Spirit, which make us one. Our fellowship with one another arises and depends on our fellowship with God. Could you imagine if you grasp that? I mean, really, if you stop and said, wow. Believing the believing community is united with the father and the son that we uh, we are we are united to them. We have intimacy with them. We have relationship. All of that comes as a result of what Christ accomplished for us. We're trusting in him and we're united to God. We're able to speak to him. Now, here's the thing. If somebody says, oh, I pray to God. I pray to God. I pray to God. Oh, I pray to God all the time. And I say, how do you get access to him? How can you fellowship with God? And they say, I don't know. I just do. And I say, the God that created this world, our relationship with him is broken. How how can you be reconciled to him? How do you think you're going to get back to him? One of the best ways maybe to ask somebody, if you're sharing the gospel with them, say, how do you have access to God? And they say, I don't know. I just do. And I would be like, well, are you a sinner? Yes. Is he holy? Yes. Then there's a divide. You're not in relationship. You're not in the family. You are not connected to him. The only way that you have a connection with him is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Who who is was who God eternally God came down to earth, became a man He lived a perfect life, the life that we failed to live, died the death that we deserve so that we could be brought into fellowship with him. That is your access. That's why we say in Jesus name, we are united to Jesus. He has access to the father. Therefore, we have access to him. It's Very, I think very important that we see that he regains fellowship. We in the church, we could say. Hey, I just like you. It's not just about liking you. It's not just saying I like you. Oh, we like hanging out. We go to a church. And, and that's what fellowship is, is we like to hang out together. That's it's deeper than that. Fellowship is that we have been united to the father and the son. And therefore, we're united with one another. It's a very uh, a powerful thing for us to see. That's how we have access to that's how that's our deepest intimacy. With one another. Now keep going here. We say John lays this out for us. His witness is laid out for us. We see the purpose of it. So that they'll have fellowship with, with God. And with one another. And then we see the result of John's witness. Verse 4. And we are writing these things. So that our joy may be complete. Now you first read that and you go. "Who? Is he just talking about himself? It's like it makes me happy. It makes me so happy. Happy to see you embracing this witness gets me so happy to see it. He is saying that I think it also includes that when his joy is complete, their joy will be complete. We see everybody's joy is complete. Now, you say, Jared, how does that bring joy when you know the one who who was from the beginning, who became flesh and dwelt among us. And you see he is the eternal life. He's the one that restores you back to God. He is the one that brings you into fellowship with God. When you embrace him, you have relationship with God. You're drawn to relationship with one another. That's where joy is found. You want to ask yourself, and I do this all the time. I want to believe that joy is found somewhere else. I really do. I want to think that if my life had these things and I can make a list of things that would make me happy and filled with joy. And I'll say, if I had this, this and this, you could do that right now. You can stop and say, I'm going to write down the one thing. If this was fixed, bro. It would just be like, woo, be awesome. And what we do a lot of times is think that's what's going to do it. That's what's going to satisfy me. That's what's going to bring the joy I'm looking for. That's what's going to make me complete. And what John is saying, the only thing that completes you is to be restored to God through his son, which brings restoration with one another. And that's where joy is found. It makes you more human. Makes you live like you were designed to live. It makes you experience what you're designed to experience. Joy is something that transcends the sorrows of the present. It's not tied to circumstances that you're presently find yourself in on this earth. Joy takes you above the present trouble and makes it brings you beyond that to something higher. Oh, and I were talking about not too long ago. She said, Jared, here's what preaching is. Preaching is helping people see beyond. It's helping them get a vision of God that takes them beyond. You say that you might meet somebody and they're really sad all the time and depressed. What is preaching? Preaching is saying, get beyond that. Look beyond it to what you really have. Take the blinders off. Take the focus off this thing and go beyond that. You need to see above this present age to the heavenly world. And you need to see your unity with God through his son. You need to grasp it. You find someone who's sour and angry and bitter. You say, listen, all those things, all that stuff you're holding on to, all of that anger and all of that bitterness, you're saying, listen, get beyond it. Can you see beyond that? Can you see beyond your hatred? Can you see beyond your anger? The reason you can't is because you're so focused on this and you're not listening to the apostolic witness. You are outside of that. You're not embracing that. What the apostolic witness was, was this, that there is hope. That there is life, that there's eternal life, that there's life beyond this, that this present age is passing away, but there's hope beyond that, that there's unity with God, that there's relationship with him, that there's acceptance with him, that there's relationship with these people that you may not understand, that is so much deeper than you holding on to some grudge. He's pointing you beyond And and that's what John does. He comes and speaks and he sits down and he sits down in the courtroom as the key witness. And he says, here's the message. Here's the message. Here's life. Here's hope. Here's here's the answer to everything. This is what keeps you. This is what satisfies your soul. This is what brings joy. This is it get it get a vision of that and you as you move forward walk in light of it walk in the light of that glorious message let's pray father we thank you for your word we pray that we would see from john's witness That he touched Jesus. That he stood by Jesus. That he talked with Jesus. That he comes to us and says Jesus is our advocate who laid his life down for us on the cross. He is our substitute. He graciously saved us. He's brought us into fellowship with him and with the Father and with one another. That is where joy is found for us when we can see it. Lord, let us see it. We need to see it. Let us not lose focus this week. Let us understand that. Savor it, treasure it, love it. God, we need to see you. We need to be enamored by your goodness and your glory. We need to stay centered on that. We we beg you to do that work in us as a church. In Christ's name, amen.